Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, a 1957 murder in Amish, Ohio. And then you have a murder occur, and you have the news media rushing in, and they don't know what to make of the Amish. They don't have any context to place these people in. They don't understand what their beliefs are. Why do they speak German? Why don't they drive cars? All that was a mystery to people in in the 50s. And so that's why this case drew an awful lot of attention. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you once again for tuning in. Well, it is so great to have with me here today father and daughter writing team, David Myers and Elise Myers Walker. They are authors who have collaborated on a dozen Ohio history books, and they are here today to talk about their book called A Murder in Amish, Ohio, the Martyrdom of Paul Koblenz. Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Well, thank Glad you. to be here. So I'd like to start by asking you about your writing relationship. How did you decide to partner together on writing books? And what are each of you responsible for in the process? Well, that's actually a really common question. Um, you asked it a very nice way. Uh, The way we frequently get it is how can you possibly work with your father or work with your daughter, depending on who they're asking, Um, which we don't take to mean as a a specifically us, but just a a discussion of the way father-daughter relationships or parent-child relationships may be in other families. Um, We always say it was actually a very natural thing. Um, I'm an only child, and so I get along with both of my parents. what I would consider normally well, but apparently many people consider very well. Um, I enjoy spending time with either or both of my parents and doing things with them. Um, Personally, I never had much interest in writing. I did a little bit of poetry as a child and that sort of thing, but um, I'm more of a performer by nature. um, And I was involved in theater for a long, long time. Um, And then two very uh, strange things happened when I was in college. Um, The first was that my roommate was actually the editor of the school newspaper and uh, he needed somebody who could write theater reviews. 
So since I was there and I had the theater experience and he assumed I could string a sentence or two together, I started doing that. Um, At about the same time, I was part of a theater troupe and my director decided that on top of her theater troupe, she also wanted to get into publishing. So she started uh, doing magazine work. And as one of her um, already on the books employees, I was also suddenly not just an actor, but a writer again there. And that was fun for me in college, but I didn't necessarily think it would go anywhere. My father, on the other hand, has always had an interest in writing and um, even considered pursuing it uh, as a vocation when he was younger. But, you know, life and money and and I think having a daughter maybe gets in the way of those kind of uh, more creative plans sometimes. So um, but he's always kept up writing and been interested in it and especially um, nonfiction writing and history. I've always also been interested in history. but. Um, after I finished college, uh, since he knew about the writing that I'd been doing, I was in New York. I came back to Ohio and he said, Hey, would you like to write a book together? And I thought, yeah, that, that does sound like something I would be interested in. And our, um, that there, there was a long winding path to to get to the first book. But, um, I think once we decided we were going to start doing that, we basically haven't stopped and we've been putting out a book together every year since then. Yeah. I, I've I've known a lot of writers, a lot of newspaper people and things, and I was struck by the fact that most of them have no interest in writing outside of their jobs. Whereas, you know, that's that's the kind of thing I would want to do. Uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't like to be told what to write, so I can understand why they might have soured on writing as a result of you know putting their building a career working for you know an editor is telling them what to do. So we we can write whatever we want. That's what we like about it. And I think we play very well off of each other too. Um, we our our interests are similar enough that once we pick a topic for our next book, we're both usually very interested in it, and we both enjoy research. Luckily, um, but we bring different aspects to it. Um, one of our first books we wrote together, well, two of them actually were about prison history, penitentiary history. My father was retired uh, after a career working in the prisons. And that's such a strange community, prison employees. The things that they think are interesting. And inmates. Uh, and inmates. <laughs> but employees, the things that they think are interesting um, that are the day-to-day prison running stuff, I think the normal public who has not spent time working in prison, such as myself and majority of people, would find incredibly boring. Um, but then they would say stuff. We would go to reunions of, of former employees and they would say this stuff offhandedly like, oh, yeah. And then there was the time that uh, that guy tried to use that sponge to kill that other person. I'd be like, wait, what? T- tell me more about this. And they go, oh, yeah, no, it was a Tuesday. Go, no, 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 no. That's the interesting story that people want to hear. They go, oh, no, but I didn't tell you about the T42S forms and how I go, no, that's not what people want to hear. So, um and in that way, we really edit each other very, very well. Um, and, and not just me editing him. He edits me, too, because I am prone to tangents and he pulls me back, usually. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's talk a little about the Amish community in Holmes County, Ohio, in the 1950s. What was it like? Well, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, not that much different than the Amish <laughs> community in Holmes County today, uh, per one of the tenets of their religion and yeah. community, not to not to change with modern times the way the rest of us do. Yeah, one of the interesting things, though, 
people don't appreciate the fact that the largest Amish community in the world is in Ohio. I mean, they automatically think of Pennsylvania, and it's smaller. But part of the, the interesting thing about the Ohio Amish is that it's it's more varied. You know, when, you, when you're looking at Pennsylvania, they're all old order Amish. Well, here you've got representatives of practically all the Amish sects are in Columbus, or in Columbus, you know, central Ohio, in Ohio. Holmes County area. Holmes County area. And so that, there's a lot more variety there. And there's, a, there's a lot more, you know, they, they don't all look exactly the same and they all follow d- very different rules. And so that's what makes them kind of interesting. And uh, so that's why you know, some strange things happen there. And we have a quote in the book from a, a an Amishman, and he says, all Amish think other Amish are strange. <laughs> and so, you know, it's a, it's a community that's not very well understood. And as we point out in the book, in 1957, when this crime happened, virtually nobody knew anything about the Amish community. There had been some interest in Pennsylvania, and that was mainly from, you know, articles that appeared like in National Geographic in the 40s. So people in New York would drive down to Pennsylvania to view the Amish. And so they had developed something of a tourist industry, but it wasn't very large. And Holmes County, Ohio, had no tourist industry at all, hardly at that time. And then you have a murder occur, and you have the news media rushing in, and they don't know what to make of the Amish. They don't have any context to place these people in. They don't understand what their beliefs are. Why do they speak German? Why don't they drive cars? All that was a mystery to people in the the 50s. And so that's why this case drew an awful lot of attention. And it was kind of reminiscent of what happened in Pennsylvania not too long ago when you had at Nickel Mine School, you had the the Amish girls that were uh, taken captive and then murdered by the, the local milkman. And at the same time, you had the same questions being asked then as you had in 1957, is that how can these people be so forgiving? How can they accept that something like this has happened you know, to them, to their children? And you know, it, it raised the same questions then as it did back in 1957. Difference was in 1957, it had never come up before. Interesting, yeah. So I do have listeners all over the world. I'm sure there are people listening who may not know a lot about the Amish way of life. So maybe if you could take us through a day for Paul Koblenz and his family. What would a a typical day have been like for them in the summer of 1957? Well, I I think that's a really interesting question. Um, Again, there is a lot of variation um, among the Amish themselves. The Amish call people who are not Amish English. So we would be the English. Um, and the Amish see the English as, um, I, I don't want to speak to how they see us, but we don't see the um, the English, we don't see the variances as much as they do. They, they can look out among their community and see it incredibly diverse. So we had difficulty with this book trying to come up with a, here is a, a perfect model for what an Amish person looks like. Um, I, when I'm thinking about the Amish, I always like to keep in mind, um, the Amish are a religious group. 
They um, are in the Anabaptist tradition, which means they believe in baptizing adults instead of infants. Um, and actually, um, a lot of people don't know this. The Amish broke off from the Mennonites um, to become stricter. A lot of people, even if they know that the Amish and the Mennonites come from a similar religious tradition, think that it's the Mennonites who are a um, offshoot offshoot of the yeah. Amish because the Amish seem to be the older, stricter group. But it was, in fact, a group of people um, that became the Amish that are the offshoot themselves. And it was um, the, the schism there was really over the idea of shunning, um, which is part of how the Amish community looks the way it looks today. There is a belief that for the benefit of the person, if they are unable to live by the group's rules after agreeing to live by the group's rules and, and being baptized into the religion and joining it, if they are unable to do that, that they need to be physically and socially separated from the community, shunned specifically. Um, the Amish view this is actually a very loving thing. It's, it's sort of like we might think tough love. They aren't doing it to punish the person. They are doing it one, to help that person see the error of their ways, but two, to keep the rest of the community on the right path, to not be led astray by that person. Um, and it is uh, this belief that leads to a lot of what we see when we see the Amish today. Um, they wear what we would consider very old-fashioned clothes. Um, the women wear dresses, almost always homemade, if not in their home, in a neighbor's home, by somebody locally. Um, the men wear homemade shirts. Um, it is Buttons are uncommon. Again, it depends on the group that you are part of. But um, anything that would be considered unique or decorative is pretty much stripped away from their clothing, their hair. The women aren't, aren't going to be wearing makeup or jewelry. Um, they're going to be wearing very, uh, they call themselves a plain people. Very plain, I think, is a, the appropriate word. It's going to be the same in housing, housing, furniture. It's going to be as functional as you can possibly make it. It's not about being decorative. It's not about showing off. And then one of the things that's most known about the Amish is they they usually don't have electricity in their homes and they usually do not drive cars themselves. Um, occasionally for business, they might have vehicles that are used or they might hire other people to drive them places if they need to go somewhere in a car, but they're not going to own a car. This is all about community. This is all about them staying in a community and um, the group of usually elders who makes the decision for the community about what can and can't be accepted makes that decision based on, is this going to take people away from the community? Cars take people away from the community. Uh, phones. Um, there might be a community phone, but there will not be phones in the houses. Except, and this, except they now tend to use cell phones for business, for purposes. business purposes. But even before cell phones existed, they saw phones as being a thing that took people away from their community you're not going to visit your neighbor anymore. You're calling somebody across the country and that's outside of your community. So there was a lot, there's a lot of the daily Amish life is going to be about the community and being in the community. They live in homes that are usually multi-generational and, and Paul Koblenz was living on a multi-generational uh, homestead. Yeah. And as far as what the daily life was for Paul and his family, just think in terms of what farming was like in the 19th century, because they they relied strictly upon horses. You know, you plowed by hand. They, they did a lot of physical labor uh, without machinery. And 
So, you know, at the time that this was going on, they were going to be doing some threshing. And so they, you know, they, they would bring in other Amish people to help them. So they'd have a larger labor force. Paul was up, you know, 10 o'clock in the evening. He was eating a breakfast <laughs> and his wife was preparing lunch for the next day for when all these workers arrive. Uh, it's very Spartan. They were, uh, fairly, they were newlyweds. They'd only been married two or three years. And so they didn't have a lot. Second, <laughs> they were living in the basement of the home because nothing above that had been built yet. So you know, it was, it was hard work, but that's, you know, that's what the life is. And uh, they value work, you know, because that does God values work. Um, Paul and his wife, Dora, were both 25 and they had an infant daughter. Um, gender roles are very, uh, very outlined in the Amish community. There are, there are very specific roles that each gender has. So Paul would have been doing more of the manual labor, not that Dora would be spared from manual labor, but the outdoor farming work would have been primarily Paul's job as the husband. Um, as we said, his wife was preparing the meals and preparing the meals for the guests they were going to have. And she also would have been taking care of the baby and keeping house. So would you share what happened at the Koblenz house on the evening of July 18th, 1957? Well, <laughs> it's a matter of where to begin. You had two individuals, Mike DeMoulin and Jean Peters, who had met at a juvenile prison in Kentucky. And they'd both been sent there about 1955. And both of them at this time, they had had been involved in some small crimes and thing, but they got sent off and both of them had been in, in the military. Mike was in the Navy and Gene was in the Air Force. Both had gone AWOL. <laughs> both had stolen cars to see girlfriends. And they both were apprehended and sent to this prison in Kentucky. It was a federal prison that was fairly new as far as what the programming was for dealing with juveniles. And they both spent less than two years there and got out in 1957. And Gene got out in January. Uh, Mike got out in July. And the first thing Mike did was contact Gene and invite him to come to Wooster so they could just, you know, pal around together. And Gene promptly came the next day after he got the letter and arrived and checked into a hotel in Wooster under a, a fake name, which we're not sure why he did that. But they decided that what they were going to do is, as Mike was working in a job, he was working at the same company his father did, and he got off at 4.30 in the afternoon and so they decided they would go groundhog hunting. And so Mike took his gun and they went off groundhog hunting. And I don't think they actually ever shot any groundhogs. But by seven o'clock, some other groundhog hunters had driven them to Holmesville and dropped them off. And they went into the Holmesville Inn. And that was a little bar that was right, you know, a block or so away from the school. It was kind of notorious for serving underage kids. And Mike and, and Gene at that time were 20 and 19. And they claimed they didn't 
drink all that much, but there are suggestions that they drank several pitchers of beer anyway, had a number of cheeseburgers, and the the owner wasn't really a reliable source on this because he had reason to keep, you know, because he'd also been accused of over-serving people. So, so he didn't want it known that he was over-serving people in his bar. So they spent, you know, some time there, and then they decide to leave. So they stole a truck uh, that was parked at the Holmesville Lumber Company, Patterson Lumber. And they went out driving through the countryside. Well, Holmesville or Holmes County is a very hilly area, you know, beautiful farmland, lots of streams and <laughs> gullies and rills and things. And they're you know, cruising through the countryside and they missed a turn and ended up putting the truck in the ditch. Well, they're there. It's it's after dark and several people come by, drive by, and they're asking them to help them get the car out or the truck out of the ditch. But they, uh, the guys declined, to, to, the, the passerbys won't assist them. They just drive off. So finally, they're, they're kind of desperate for finding a way to get home. And they look over and they see a light on at this one farm. And it happens to be Paul Koblenz's farm. So they hike on over there, uh, you know, it's a few hundred yards away. And Paul and his wife, you know, it's, it's 10, 1030 in the evening and the dog starts barking and it's, you know, it's a farm dog. So Paul goes outside to see what's happening. And the next, and, the baby starts crying. So Dora goes and picks up the baby and she goes to the back door to see what's going on and is met by Mike, who's coming in with the, the gun, the rifle. And she backs up and then her husband, Paul's coming in right behind him and Jean is holding a knife on Paul and Jean has Paul lie down flat on the kitchen floor. And Mike had asked her, do you have any horses? Because they were thinking they could ride horses back to Wooster. Now, I think this is the best argument for the fact that they were drunk, because that's drunk logic to me. We crashed our car, <laughs> give us a horse. Yeah. I mean, these were not, you know, these these men, again, they the two of them were not Amish. It's not like they were necessarily super accustomed. Well, to, Mike knew the Amish, though. He did. Yeah. But but he they spoke, weren't. He even spoke German. But so. these were not men who would be riding horses normally in their day-to-day -day lives. But anyhow. The horses were out running in the field, so that was out of the question. So then Gene decides to rob Paul, and he asks him for his money, and he indicates the drawer that the wallet's kept in, and so Gene pulls it out, sees there's $9 in there. There's $5, you know, four ones, and some change. And he's going to take that, and then Paul kind of pleads to him, said, you know, please leave me some money, because Paul wasn't that rich. And so... Gene gives him the $5 bill and keeps the four ones. In the meantime, Mike is with Dora. And Mike claims he was in the pantry, actually, uh, getting some peaches, I think, and eating them. But Dora claimed that he was menacing her and th basically with a knife had scratched her and the kid, the baby, with the knife, threatening her, uh, 
you know, implying that he wanted, you know, to have sex with her, which Mike denies. And I should point out that Mike didn't testify as his trial, but we tracked him down and I've interviewed him four times. So, so I've got his side of the story as well. But anyhow, as this was going on, Paul decides to get up and run for it. And presumably he was going to run next door to his father's to get help. And as he runs out the door, uh, Gene raises the rifle, shoots him in the back, and he falls out the, the back door. And Gene follows him and does a kill shot, shoots him in the head. Mike comes rushing out to see what's happened. And, you know, they're, they're both of them are kind of panicked because they've just murdered a guy. And they rush outside. Mike has taken the gun away from Gene. He fires a shot into the air, which was supposedly a warning shot to keep people from following him. And they take off running. And by this time, Paul's father and mother and, and sisters have come running. And they find him you know, halfway in the door, out the doorway. And the father, Mose, he continues running to the closest farm and tells what happens. And then that farmer runs to the, the closest farm that has a phone to call the police. And uh, the, so the police arrive, you know, I think it's 1130 or 12, something like that. And that's when the, the investigation begins. And and uh, so so that's what happened on that night. <laughs> I, I want to point out that um, Paul trying to leave the house was not in any way a cowardly act. He wasn't running away while his wife was being attacked. The Amish are pacifists. It would have been not only out of character, but in fact, uh, contradictory to his religion and culture for him to try to fight back in any way, um, the way I think some of us might imagine that we would try to. Yeah. Um, leaving the situation to seek help was really the best thing that he could do in that situation um, as an Amish man. Yeah, I mean, even just resistance is considered aggression. Mm -hmm. And we'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. It's a really interesting contrast You've got photos of these kids in your book. One of them looks like a character out of the Blackboard Jungle with a white T-shirt, greasy hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And terrorizing an, an Amish family. Yeah. It's, it's striking. Mike was five imagery. foot seven, and, and Gene was six foot three. And uh, so they, they presented kind of a frightening sight because Mike did have a lot of tattoos and looked like the, the rougher of the two. But but Gene was bigger, and so yeah, and it wouldn't. I was saying, you know, um, they they were aware of the Amish, but it's not likely that Paul and his wife would have come into frequent contact with English people. They they were surely aware of the English, as all Amish are aware of their English neighbors, but especially at that time, but, you know, as a tenant of the community, they wouldn't have been interacting with people who looked like them on any kind of a regular basis. So this would have been even more alien in your home that one, it's late at night, two, there's two kind of rough looking guys standing here that you don't know. And then three, they are not of your community, which is everything to you. That's why we go into quite a bit of detail about crimes against the Amish leading up to that period. So provide the context, what, you know, what they were accustomed to and, and what they would have heard of. What's your theory on how this all escalated? I mean, from a, a couple of kids wanting to get their truck out of the ditch to murdering someone? Do you believe that, that alcohol was to blame? Or I believe was it, it just was. a power trip gone wrong? Or Yeah. The reason I believe it was is because Part of what Mike has told me, even though Mike minimizes, he, he contends they weren't drunk, but at the same time, he, he says that uh, the Gene had a drinking problem all of his life, and that's what ultimately killed him. In, in both, you know, this was the, the first shooting. Later, there's another shooting where they shoot a constable. But in both cases, Gene was the trigger man. And he's the one, you know, that... If either of them had a problem with alcohol, it was Gene. And and on both occasions, Mike talks about how shocked he was that Gene would do that. And, and I sh- should emphasize, too, that Mike is an, an interesting person. He's much more reflective than you would expect him to be. And to this day, even though you know, he, he, he faced the possibility of being executed, and wasn't, he said that he deserved it. Said he wouldn't have held it against him if they had decided to execute him. Because he took, he was involved with Gene and they took another man's life. 
we know this was definitely not premeditated. It seems like just an, like you said, an escalation of bad decision on bad decision and, um, you know, unexpected behavior. Obviously they did not expect Paul to try to run. I, I think there was a lot of reactions going on and just, just again, alcohol definitely played a role, but none of this was, they didn't set out that night to do this. They had never ever interacted with Paul or Dora before <laughs> they had, I mean, potentially been by the farm, but not been to the farm ever before. Um, it's, it's just one of those very rare, you know, <laughs> tragedies that occurs between strangers when somebody's making bad decisions. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like maybe, you know, one of them was a catalyst for the other, you know, t- together. No, separately they weren't a problem. Together they were. You know, a bad chemical reaction or something. Um, and it's not as though I mean, they had never murdered before, but it didn't come out of nowhere. Again, they met in prison. They met when they were, you know, in a in a reform situation. Yeah. So they had been involved with the law previously a number of times separately. Stealing. Stealing. Yeah, just bad decisions like that. Yeah. Stealing automobiles and you know, going AWOL and that kind of stuff. Uh, this was completely out of character for either one of them, as far as we could, could can tell. And that was one of the things we wanted to be able to determine for the book, because for the Amish, you know, after this whole thing went to trial, and they just, you know, and it was uh, the jury decided that both of them were guilty of first degree murder. And that Gene should be executed, and the Amish said, and the and the Mennonites said, "You're not going to do that in our name. We don't believe in it." And so they mound this whole campaign to 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 get the sentence commuted. And part of that is based upon their belief, you know, that you know God makes those decisions. God should decide, and they wanted the opportunity to still save this person's soul. And so they really concentrated a lot of their efforts into ministering to Gene in particular while he was in prison with the idea of being that they would bring him to Jesus. And, you know, and they, you know, the Mennonite publications didn't make note of the fact that, you know, he had become a Christian since he was in prison and they, you know, he was involved in classes and all this other thing, things going on. So one of the things we wanted to try to determine is what became of these guys afterwards? Because they both eventually got out of prison and was, you know, was the effort that the Mennonites and the Amish put into, you know, saving them worth it? Now, and, this is us being <laughs> cynical. I believe that the Amish and the Mennonites would say it's always worth it. Yeah. Because the the forgiveness and the mercy that they as a community and then they as individuals actually personally affected by this show. I, it's overwhelming to, to people like us who do not live in that world. Yeah. So we wanted to know whether they got the desired result, I guess. And especially since a lot was made of Jean's conversion and, you know, and uh, so Unfortunately, Gene had passed away, so we weren't able to track him down. 
but we did track down Mike and Mike was willing to talk to us. And as it turned out, he and Gene had kept in touch most of their lives. In fact, they had, they had married sisters. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so Mike definitely knew what was going on in a lot of Gene's life. And we also contacted a couple of private investigators and one of them ran some background stuff on us for us. And we cannot find where they ever got in any trouble after they got released from prison. And uh, Mike contends that they didn't. And I've got to believe him because we couldn't find it. Uh, so they did go straight afterwards. And uh, both of them, you know, Gene particularly seemed to be very highly regarded, you know, in his community, uh, judging from what we could find in <laughs> obituaries and that kind of thing. Uh, Mike is, is more of a loner and, uh, people that know him seem to like him, but he, he kind of keeps to himself. Uh, he's very much involved in his, his church community, but otherwise he, he you know, he lives off by himself and spends a lot of time, you know, fishing and <laughs> that kind of thing. So as you stated earlier, Mike denied him emphatically that he made any sexual advances towards Dora. But, but Dora, as a very religious person, ad- adhering to very strict religious tenets, uh, being honest would be one of those, assumably. It, it's really hard to believe that Mike is innocent in that. Well, I, I think, you know, we have to accept what Dora said. The problem is determining what Dora said. Uh, What we found, you know, we were able to track down the transcript for uh, Gene's trial because Gene's the one that ended up going, you know, to the state Supreme Court to get overturned the the death penalty on it. But Mike's has disappeared. And what's interesting is when you have the actual trial transcript, comparing it to what was published in the newspapers, and you see, you know, the newspapers were saying that Dora was raped. Dora said she was not raped. You know, it's that kind of stuff. And you see a mention of, you know, that you know they noticed a few scratches on her and on the on the baby. Well, one of the newspapers said that he had cut a cross on both of them. Well. What's clear from the transcript is <laughs> it wasn't a cross. He had cut a cross. <laughs> um, so it's that kind of thing that, you know, shows up and, you know, you've got the newspapers, you know, reporters listening to these trials and jotting down whatever they think they hear and then reporting it as news. So there is some uh, discrepancy there. Personally, I believe that she felt threatened, and that's yeah. for me. I don't, I don't need to know the details of how she felt threatened. If she, I, again, he's like you said, it's difficult to determine what, what yeah. her actual testimony was. But if, if what the reporters are reporting is that she said she was being attacked, I believe yeah. that she was being attacked. Yeah, but you know, it's it's just, the doctor did not examine her. He didn't even examine her cuts. I mean, it's the sheriff that mentions the 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 scratches on her. And and we 
for a number of reasons, we did not even try to contact her. Um, well, we did try. Well, we did try. I mean, with we did not we did not seek an interview with her. She asked to not be involved. Yeah, yeah, we did not, and that's not a thing that we'd want to pursue or push or anything like that. So, the words from her we have as reported at the time, as opposed to. Uh, Mike, who was able yeah. to talk to us in the present. Yeah. Um, and and Mike, you know, didn't testify at his trial. Gene didn't testify at his trial. Dora testified at both of them. And as so we have the transcript from the one, but only the newspaper accounts from the other. Uh, we do have the confessions they make. And Mike was consistent in denying anything in the confession he made, too. Whereas Gene put everything out there. So... You know, we, what we have is what we have, but I, you know, she, as Elise said, she definitely felt threatened. You know, uh, there was menacing behavior and her husband was murdered. You know, <laughs> in, in that atmosphere, I, you know, I'm surprised she was able to keep it together enough to actually go into court and testify. Because we try to emphasize Amish women aren't used to being, you know, the center of attention. She's 25 years old and she's expect, you know, she's the, the key prosecution witness. And it, it took an awful lot of courage for her to even get up there and talk about something as intimate as what was occurring. You know, and as intimate and terrifying and horrifying and traumatic. Uh, you know, she's an extremely brave woman. So, you know, you have to accept what she said to the extent that we can verify what she said. So how did law enforcement connect them to the crime? And how long did it take them to solve the murder? Well, you know, they, you had, after they committed the crime, they just started running. Started running against, through fields and things. And in Holmes County, you know, it's, it's farm community. And so you've got all these little you know, small towns, you know, probably... 10 miles apart, each of them. And they uh, ran to Fredericksburg and stole a car and took off. And the idea was that uh, Gene wanted to go back home, which was basically Illinois. And Mike wanted to go to uh, Canada. He thought he could go to Canada and hide out. And along the way, they stopped near Lacan, Illinois, by the Illinois River, and found this uh, fishing uh, cabin. And they broke into it, were staying there. And a constable happened to be just looking around and thought it looked suspicious. And when he started nosing around, uh, Gene took the rifle and shot him twice. And he was lucky he didn't get killed. And then they fled again. They, they, he had arrived in a boat. They sunk his boat. They got in another boat and started down the river. And it took several days for them to be tracked down. But no, the, the, none of this stuff was thought out very well at all. I mean, they, they, they weren't master criminals. Yeah. Mike was actually a suspect almost from the beginning since he was from the area and was kind of a known ne'er-do-well. Yeah. Um, they actually suspected him and... Um, Chester Someone Carter. else named Chester Carter, yeah, who who was considered an associate of his at the time, although 
yeah. Mike denies that they Mike were associates. Says he never heard of the guy. But apparently, law enforcement had both of these names just on their top suspects right away record. Um, you know, they ch- they found Chester pretty quickly, and it became obvious that he was not involved. But then, yeah. where's Mike? We can't find Mike, and that's how they get into more of the manhunt. Um, they took fingerprints from Dora's glasses. She had gold framed glasses, and also from the steering wheel of the truck that they had stolen. Uh, how those fingerprints led to Chester Carter. <laughs> you know, he he was still in Wooster when the other two were out there. And what you run into is the, the sheriff, Harry Weiss, he makes several statements that he doesn't have any support for, as it turns out, and has to, to back off of them. Uh, he, he's an interesting character in himself. And, you know, and I, it, I was really fascinated, you know, as we were investigating Harry and find out that his son, Daryl, who's also his deputy, had married this, another sister of the same family that Mike and Jean married sisters in. So, so the deputy was, you know, he, was a, he and the sheriff were arresting two guys that he was going to shortly, well, not shortly, in 20 years, he'd be related to them by marriage. <laughs> wow. Huh. Yeah, and then, you know, the other crimes we point out, things that occur, tragedies in the Amish communities just around Ohio, and you know how, you know, the, the Koblenz name comes up and it goes, well, that was the third cousin of this one. That was the second cousin of this one, and everybody's related. I, I was asked on social media if Paul was related to uh, a Koblenz business that somebody pointed out because it's Holmes County, and I said, yeah, probably, but I, I couldn't tell you how exactly because, um, you know, it's an insular community. There's only so many last names and there's only so many people. So there's, there's a lot of within the Amish and the English in these small towns, not uh, within each other, but the English in the town and the Amish in the right. town will all be intermarried usually. Cause it's a small town in Ohio. Yeah. So once Mike and, and Jean get apprehended in Illinois and they find out there's a warrant out for their arrest and Harry Weiss and his son, and another guy go there to drive them back to Ohio. And they gave a confession in Illinois. They turned around and gave the gave practically the same confession in Ohio. And uh, so then it was a matter of their attorneys trying to keep them from being given the death penalty. I mean, it was kind of given that they're going to be convicted of murder. You know, they had confessed. They had fingerprints. They had Dora. You know, they... <laughs> They had plenty of eyewitness you know, testimony, so it then became a fight to keep them from being put to death. Yeah. Um, w- one of the fascinating things for me in reading your book is the relationship between the Amish people and the American judicial system. What was their view on all of these proceedings, the trials? They recognized the state's right to do that. And so that because it's the law, they cooperate to the extent necessary. But, you know, it's one of those things, they probably didn't even have any interest in how the trial turned out. That's not something they'd be sitting around waiting for because they had their own way of healing. So they, you know, they, they, the community rushes in to give support to the victims. And that's, that's the interesting part too, is, they saw the victims as being, you know, the 
Gene and Mike and their parents, you know, and so this kind of everybody was kind of a victim of this horrible thing that happened, even those who committed it. And uh, which is a very hard thing for people to understand. But, you know, you can imagine uh, Gene's parents are coming from actually Iowa because they lived right across the, the river from Illinois. They're coming from Iowa for the trial. And they're being invited into Amish homes for meals while they're staying in Ohio. The parents of the guy who's accused of murdering an Amishman. Because the Amish are seeing them as victims yeah. just as much as Dora. Dora has been attacked and lost her husband. These people, their son has done something awful, and that's tragic. Yeah. It, it really must have just been a scary time in general in that area for everyone. That, you know, we got some, you know, testimony in there from people talking about it. you had this kind of the summer of terror when everybody thought that, you know, that if you were Amish, that there was somebody out there who was killing Amish people. And so they, they couldn't rest you know, really thinking that there's somebody prowling around there doing that because it was just so unfathomable that somebody would do that. Why would you kill somebody who's a pacifist? I mean, I found that particularly interesting. I, I, we were trying to find, learn as much as we could about Dora's situation following the murder of her husband. She, to a certain extent, she, I mean, she's lost her vocation. She was, wife and mother was going to be her job for the rest of her life after she married and had her daughter. She still is a mother, but she is no longer a wife. There's no real means within the community for a single Amish woman to support herself in any way. She essentially becomes uh, beholden on family to take care of her because she can't run the farm. She can't open a business. These are not options. Again, with the rigid uh, structure for gender, there's, there's nothing she can do with that. So, yeah, we were very interested in, you know, not only the tragedy of losing your husband, but the tragedy of your whole life being upended after such a thing and how how you go on in a an emotional human sense and how you go on in a practical day-to-day you know dollars sense yeah. and we, you know, we ran across this subgenre of literature which i found fascinating and it's all basically these, these small and <laughs> to some extent self-published books of amish memoirs about how a person dealt with the tragic death of a loved one. And they're mostly written by women. And they talk about, okay, you know, it'll be, no, their son was hit by a car in front of the house. And just the whole stages of grief that that woman went through dealing with the loss of her son and how it impacted the family and that kind of thing. And there's a number of these books out there. And several of them deal with Amish people who have been murdered. And they find this kind of healing for people, other Amish people who have gone through things like this. And they even have these uh, meetings every year where Amish people who have had tragic deaths in their family, whether somebody died from some horrible disease or farm accident or you know their buggy was hit or something like that 
they get together and kind of in this one <laughs> had these you know, big communal grief uh, sessions in order to help them get through it. And you know, they, they've got a, a very interesting program almost where, you know, if you are an Amish person and you're widowed like Dora is, you can expect visitors every Sunday. You know, they're going to be there with you. They're going to come in. They're going to bring food. They're going to be there to help you go through this process. And it, often it continues for a year. Yeah, she would not have been left alone. Um, not, not during the trial, not again after the trial for quite some time because the community would be there and looking out for her. And if you look at, you know, there, there's an Amish newspaper called The Budget, which is published in Ohio. And it goes all over the world. It it has consists of these little uh, articles written by Amish people from their small little communities, places that aren't on any map. And they will mention that so and so lost his you know son or something, or lost his father, or lost his wife. You know, and they have you know three little ones. And people will send money to them from all over the Amish <laughs> nation. Uh, to help them out, because that's the way they deal with things. You know, every loss is a communal loss. You know, every need is addressed communally. The Amish do not have insurance except where they are required to by law. They don't believe in insurance. They believe that insurance is um, kind of spit, no. you're spitting in the eye of God a little bit there. Because if you have insurance, you're saying, I don't have faith in God to take care of me. And because of this, when a tragedy occurs, um, like like a death of um, the person who's making all the money in the household, or a tragic fire, or um, a long uh, medical illness due to something, there is no insurance the way we would have fire insurance, medical insurance, that sort of thing. The community comes together for that. And the community says, okay, your, your kid's sick. If we all give in $5, we can pay the medical bills. And if we can't, maybe more people, more Amish people in other states can be all pay five dollars and cover the medical bills. And and uh, that's again, it always, always, always comes back to community for the Amish. Yeah. I mean, the subtitle of our book, The Martyrdom of Paul Koblenz, really uh, ties it to this tradition and among the Anabaptists of honoring those people who have been martyrs to the faith. And there's a book which for you know years was second only to the Bible in Amish homes, and it's called uh, The Martyr's Mirror. And essentially it's, it's this compendium of 4,000 Anabaptists who uh, died for their faith, were, were murdered, were tortured, you know, were <laughs> burned at the stake. Uh, it's from the time of Christ until 1660. And that was part of something that they grew up reading about these people. And there's one of them in there, I think I believe his name is Dirk Willem, who's a famous martyr. And he was Dutch, I believe. And he was had escaped from prison where he's being held and ran across a frozen lake. And the jailer was chasing him, and the jailer was overweight, broke through the ice. And so Dirk turned around and rescued him, and then was captured and put to death. 
And that's considered to be a person who was a martyr to his faith and did exactly what God wanted him to do. You know, he gave up his life essentially to save this other person, even though the other person may not have been worthy of it. And so Paul Koblenz is viewed by the Amish community as just being another one of these martyrs. Does the house where, where the murder took place still stand? Yeah, it does. We discourage people from visiting it. It's private property. Uh, of course, of course, yeah. Yeah. I was definitely not suggesting that anyone go visit the house. I'm, I'm more interested in knowing how the family, the community, would, would treat the scene of a horrible crime like that. I mean, you, you say he's a martyr in the community. I mean, it's in the, the title of your book. Does that mean that they see the house as a, a symbol of some kind? Um, did, did it get taken down? Or did they just move on and, and continue to use the house as a house? Well, they, they continued to use it as a house. In fact, it ended up being purchased by the, the cousins who you know fixed it up and things. And so it doesn't have any special status. You do remember, though, with the Nickel Mines murder, they they leveled that schoolhouse right away. And that doesn't have to do with the Amish. That has to do with outsiders. Mm-hmm. You know, that the, the you've got, that, that would become too much of a, uh, you know, a attraction. Morbid, morbid attraction for people. You know, this schoolhouse where 10 little Amish girls were gunned down. You know, that would become a big tourist attraction. That's not the kind of thing that the Amish would want. With the house, you have to go back to the practicality of it again. This was a house, like we said, they were living in the basement because the upstairs was still being constructed. But this was a perfectly fine, sound, solid house that was being constructed. Mm. And that's not the kind of thing that you would just get rid of, even though such a terrible thing happened there. Um, Dora, um, yeah, Dora did not continue to live there. She, no. she did not stay in the house. But... As we said, family did. They continued to use it. They built it. And it, it does indeed still stand and is seemingly being used. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's. I doubt that it has any curiosity at all for them. Although this story is well known in the community. When we were there doing research, you know, <laughs> everywhere I mentioned it, people remembered this story. Even if they weren't old enough to remember. Because it, it was such a just a, a you know a, a marked contrast to anything had gone before so you have a website right that that lists the books that you've written would you mind telling us more about that we do our website is www.explodingstove.com um we can also be found on instagram facebook and twitter at explodingstove.com um, exploding stove is a circus term. It means anything can happen. Um, but we have a list of our books there. Um, we also have um, some additional resources on some of our books. If we came across something after the book was published, we'll put it there. If uh, we are um, contacted by uh, people involved in our books and they have something they want to share with us, we'll put that on our website as well. Uh, people are encouraged to contact us if they want to through our website or through social media. Uh, we we like to talk to people about our books. We appreciate that people want to talk about our books. We always say we write the books we write because we want to read them, but no one else has written them yet. Uh, so 
it, it really is thrilling for us when anybody else wants to read them because we've mostly written them for ourselves. Uh, but yeah, www.explodingstove.com. And, and then also our books are available um, on, most of them are on Amazon. Um, you can usually find them at local retailers uh, like Barnes and Noble, small independent bookstores, um, especially in the central Ohio area, do frequently have them. I think we have like half dozen true crime altogether. Yeah, about a half dozen true crime. Um, my father and I, we write uh, mostly Ohio history together, but he's also written some fiction. Um, he has a lot of music history, um, some plays that are out there. But yeah, we, we write on all sorts of topics, um, not just true crime. We also have our book before this one was on historic black settlements of Ohio. We uh, recently wrote about um, coal mining in Ohio. We've written on um, Ohio's Black Hand Syndicate, which is uh, <laughs> organized crime, which is a true crime one. Yeah. Um, we've also written about the Kahiki Supper Club, which was the Tiki Temple in Columbus, Ohio. And we wrote a, a very large book on lynchings and mob violence in Ohio. Uh, we've written about Lazarus Department Store, which again was another institution in Ohio. So we Varying topics, um, but we encourage people mm -hmm. to check out our books because we think they're good and they make excellent presents. <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks again for joining me. Well, thank, thank you. you. Again, I have been speaking to David Myers and Elise Myers Walker. They are the authors of A Murder in Amish, Ohio, The Martyrdom of Paul Koblenz. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.